The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And a big welcome to everyone who's here, especially anybody who's come either online on Zoom or here in person. Some people, of course, listening on our YouTube channel. And just so you all know, you can always find most of the programs done at the center live on our YouTube channel, freely available to listen to at any point. So feel free to go there if you want to rehear something. And I've been giving a series of talks on the joy of renunciation just to create a different attitude about letting go. And... Um, yeah, we always have that imprint of sacrifice being painful. And it, and it often is. It's scary, you know, to let go. So the, to really understand renunciation, we have to experiment with it. And we actually have to encourage the mind to honestly notice what it's like. Because like normally, for most of us, the mind can just do whatever it wants to do. It can think about this, it can worry about that, it can go into the past and speculate about the future. And then you take up a meditation training and we're asking the mind, you know, there are many different meditative trainings, not just counting our breath. That's just one particular little training. And all the trainings are there to reveal something about the nature of the mind that we otherwise wouldn't notice. Right? It's sort of like when people do new things. You know, I'm going to go swim, or I'm going to go travel, or I'm going to have kids, or whatever. You know, I'm going to be single for a while, or I'm going to get involved in a relationship, or I'm going to, whatever it might be, go camping. And we see something about our conditioning and the nature of the mind through that engagement, the different ways we engage the world. And one of the ways we can engage the world, you know, is to sit in a comfortable way. And like we did at the beginning, you know, just to remember, like whatever I'm about to do, it's an act of kindness. It's not self-punishment, which is what sometimes we can have this attitude about spiritual practice, like I'm bad and I need to be punished. So I have to go to common ground on Sunday. (laughs) And sit still for 35 minutes, you know, while somebody talks. It makes it even worse. Because at least I could just sort of use that time to think about whatever I want to think about. But he keeps talking. <laughs> it interrupts my, you know, fantasy or whatever. So, you know, we sit in a relaxed, upright way, or in a way that supports wakefulness, but also relaxation. And then... Uh, we're doing this retreating, and what are we retreating from? We're retreating from whatever the habit-based mind would do at that time, right? So, and the way we retreat from that is we ask the mind to do something with some real results, some real intention. Honey, you know, can you feel the body? Can you keep feeling the body? Can you practice not forgetting to feel the body. How about something more specific? Feeling the breath moving in the body. 
about cultivating, purifying that interest. Because it's just so interesting for the mind to purposefully not do what it normally does. Because that's the only way you're going to know what it feels like when the mind is not doing what it normally does. It normally worries, it normally plans, it normally compares, it normally judges, it normally problem solves. And when you're done problem solving your problems, you start solving your partner's problems and the problem of having to solve problems. It never ends, right? All of these ways of mental proliferation have a kind of ongoingness to them. Because the worst thing when we're in some sort of mental proliferation, obsessive proliferation, is like to get to some place where we got to like the end of the line of our mental proliferation and it can be uncomfortable like oh my god there's this vast space so we rush back to we find desperately some kind of way to continue the mental proliferation because the mind gets very comfortable it starts to feel safe in that proliferating context it's like that's home and when there's not mental proliferation going on, not some problem that's being solved, some future that's being speculated about, some past that's being regurgitated, then it's like being out in public naked. You know, that's that's sort of the feeling like I don't I think there's something desperately wrong about what's going on. So we go back to some thinking. So we wanna create a context where we can get to know the mind that is simple in the sense of not being identified and caught up in mental proliferation. So like one simple technique like we did today, hopefully you experimented with it, is just counting the breath. And it's not about the counting because it's easy to sort of think about the counting and do the counting, but you're almost like proliferating around being the counter counting. That's the new drama that the mind is proliferating about. So you're conjoining the number. So when you're, if you get to eight, you know, breathing in eight, when you, when the mind makes that mental note eight, that, that mental activity of repeating the word eight is conjoined with the feeling of the sensations in that moment. That's the key. Just like you could, you know, you don't have to count. There's, many, so many different ways. You could just use the word in when you're breathing in and out or knowing the breath. You could repeat a phrase or allowing the breath to be with the exhalation. But the counting is, as a particular technique, a learning, it's especially useful because it's humbling to see that it's not necessarily easy to have an unwavering presence with something ordinary for those, you know, just to get to three or to get to seven or to get to ten or to get to ten again, you know. And sometimes people will say, oh yeah, I, I, I did that all the way through, didn't miss a beat. And generally those people are so deluded they don't realize, <laughs> like, like the mind's been lost in thought, and when it comes to 
It's like a really deluded mind knows how to cover its tracks. So it just presumes it knows where it left off, continues, and then sort of covers the tracks of having been lost in thought, as if it was never lost, you know? And like, because it doesn't remember how many groups of 10 it's done, it just will insert a number. We've done it seven times, right? And so, just be on the lookout. Like for this, uh, Hajan Chah calls it this lying mind. And you know, this is not just something in Buddhist practice. Western psychologists have done numerous studies that just shows how the habit-based mind is totally willing to lie. You know, it will see something uh, like, you know, psychologists will show undergraduates pictures and then one of the pictures will be a bus, but half of the bus is missing. You know, or one, it was an airplane and one of the wings was missing. I mean, in an obvious way. But the mind just lies to itself. It just tells itself that the wing was there. You know, so the, the researcher will say afterwards, so anything strange about that? No, anything. Because the mind just fill, makes it seem like it's supposed to seem. Oh yeah, I was counting my breaths. Saida Upandita, I think, once said, you know, he would ask uh, some of his students when they come to meet in an interview during a meditation retreat, you know, how many times did you get distracted? And so, once, you know. <laughs> but but we, the thing is, we don't necessarily know how long that once was, like maybe 60 minutes. <laughs> So there's something like one of the first signs of starting to get some continuity of present moment awareness is a more honest sense of how much the mind is distracted, how, how, uh, how much wavering there is in the continuity. You know, we're kind of there, the awareness is there connecting. There is that mindful awareness, oh, this, this is being known. But then there's sort of, it's like a seduction. You know, the mind gets, sees something in the periphery, not the meditation object. And generally, of course, the meditation object is the present moment. But because the mind needs help, we give it specific things. But don't be confused by the specific meditative anchors. They're just there to support that present moment awareness of the present moment, the totality of the present moment. So it's a training, like you're with the breath and you're being asked to count the breath, for example, like we did today. But then there's something, like it could be doubt about whether the effort I have to make is really worth it, or I'm so bad at this, why even try? You know how we are, like, uh, I feel that way whenever I'm doing one of the Puzzles. I've been doing some of the puzzles now. Win and I, it's like our entertainment sometimes. Not obsessive, but you know. But I, I just noticed how this very, it's just so interesting. Like, if I kind of get stuck with Wordle and I'm running out of choices, it's like, I really don't want to do it. I mean, it's like, I really want to give up. And it's just, that's that voice of like, uh, <clears throat> like, if you just keep doing this and fail, it's going to look really bad. <laughs> so just 
make it seem like you've got something better to do. This is a waste of time, right? And it's just like, so, so this same sort of thing will happen when you're tracking the present moment, whether you're doing counting or not, whether you're using a more open awareness, where you're aware of whatever's predominant moment by moment, you can't get away of this phenomenon. You can just cheat better when you're doing a more open awareness practice because it's easier to not recognize when you're distracted. That's the shadow of open awareness practice. There's some advantages, right? For people who have a real controlling personality, it's a little less uh, triggering for your controlling personality when you're not telling your awareness what to be aware of. Well, whatever you want to be aware of, it's fine, as long as you recognize it's being known here and now. It's just an experience being known. So if you think, okay, thinking it's being known. But you still have to remember. So it's easy to fake it. Like, oh no, I'm kind of present. I was, I was, yeah, I was planning the next 10 years of my life, but I was aware. <laughs> and it's, it's probably true that in a moment, you were aware that you were planning the next 10 years of your life. But was that awareness that you were planning the next 10 years of your life, was that awareness sustained through that 15 minutes of planning the next 10 years of your life? Probably not. Probably there were one or two moments where you recognized what the mind was doing, but it wasn't being sustained. And that's what present moment awareness is, is when that recognition that this mental activity or this experience is being known here and now, when that discernment happens, that's a moment of present moment awareness. Only that. And that is a pretty radical moment. Being present, for most of us, is a pretty radical event. And then to sustain present moment awareness, one of the things you'll notice when you actually sustain present moment awareness in that balanced way is it becomes an altered state very quickly because we don't know what present moment awareness is. It's a very unfamiliar reality for us. We're mostly lost in thought. And one of the characteristics of that, there's sort of two predominant characteristics. We call this, by the way, some of you know, samadhi, which usually gets badly translated as concentrated concentration. It's more usefully translated as a unification, a gathering of the mind. That's what it actually, that's the felt sense of samadhi. And the two characteristics of samadhi, when you actually get some continuity of present moment awareness, which is this profound renunciation of distraction, right? We're letting go of distraction, we're realizing non-distraction, and on the one hand, it has a lot of energy. There's a lot of energy when there's non-distraction. It's distraction that dissipates energy. Going here, the mind flitting about, worrying about this, getting fixed about that, obsessing over here, wondering about that. But when the mind is in this receptive mode, then what starts to come online is how much energy there is here and now. So, you know, we sometimes talk about alertness or brightness or joy, but that joy, that brightness, the alertness, the vividness, it's really uncovering what's here 
when it's not dissipated and when it's not covered over. I know it sounds a little woo-woo, but you know, the energy of the universe or the energy of all of this, no boundaries, is here. And the mind has developed very tenacious habits of concocting a sense of separation from the totality of this. You know, modern physics says the same thing, so it's not just a kind of a Buddhist thing. You know, it's like, uh, ever wonder how these atom bombs have so much energy? I mean, it's just energy here. Or hydrogen bombs, you know, the fusing or the... It's just, there's just a lot of energy. That's sort of the nature of this. So why do we need so much coffee? <laughs> or in my case, green tea, you know? Because we're, we operate, you know, identified with thoughts, different versions of thoughts of separation. And we feel dead to the world. We feel flat. We feel, you know, like there's no energy. So that's one of the characteristics of samadhi. And we'll have to, like, as your, not just your formal sitting meditation, but as your awareness practice, which means all day long, develops, you're going to have a lot of energy. And that will be its own challenge, not to do neurotic stuff with that energy. <laughs> because it's not easy to learn how to let that energy be this potential energy. It's like you, it doesn't need action. If you need to do something, fine. You, that energy can flow that way. But it doesn't need to do anything, but it isn't afraid of doing anything because it's just potential energy. So that's one thing that arises. And then paradoxically, the other thing that arises with samadhi is calm or peace or tranquility or a sense that whatever this bright, alive energy is, it's all happening on its own. It already knows what it's doing. So there's something that can be peaceful. What is that something that can be peaceful? The sense of being the doer who has got to do it. So, and again, this starts in relatively mundane ways, the building of energy and the sense of calm. But as the practice or the, you know, the particular sit or the particular period of time when the mind really drops into, what is the mind going to drop into? You know, we think of like a special state, but it's dropping into what? It's dropping into what's always here and now when it's not mediated, when here and now isn't mediated by ignorance. It's always here and now. The peace is here and now. It's available here and now, at least. The energy is available here and now. But the mind, the habits of the mind are working overtime, which is why life is difficult for us and why we make life difficult for others, right? It's, the mind is animated by greed, hatred, and delusion, we say in, in early Buddhism, right? 
Those are the motivating, you know, the primary motivations, uh, animating forces. Greed, subtle greed, obvious greed, lust, you know, subtle aversion, you know, a little anxiety, a little fear, grosser aversion, you know, outright hate, resentment, revenge, and delusion, you know, thinking that we know, having a fixed idea of what's going on, not really being open, not really being interested in that pure sense. And that's all actually we're renouncing, you know, we're just renouncing ignorance and the, the different patterns or habits that arise out of ignorance. That's all we're learning to let go of because it's not for my well-being and it's not for the well-being of others or both, as the Buddha says. So we abandon that. But we have to undertake a training because the thing about ignorance, like being animated by greed, hatred, and delusion, there's some real cohesiveness about living life in that way. You know, when we've spent the day acting out greed and hatred, the one thing that makes sense is to keep acting out greed and hatred. If we eat really strongly flavored potato chips, the only thing that makes sense is to eat another one. Have you noticed? It's like nothing else compares. You just need another one of those extremely seasoned chips. You know? And it's the same thing that there's this kind of intensity, juiciness to greed and hatred. And so it, it creates a very cohesive, the, that way of being, that way of relating, just holds itself together. And so we have to um, rally our interest and appropriate concern, and I call this wholesome fear, like if I just keep doing the same thing, I'm just going to be better at the same thing. So I have to, I have to do the uncomfortable work. That's why there's so much, uh, you know, in, in yogic mysticism, they have a term tapas. Uh, some of you know that have maybe done a lot of yoga practice. It's the heat, uh, the spiritual heat, you could say. And, you know, we often talk about the fruit of Dharma practice is a kind of coolness of non-attachment, peacefulness, right? But initially, like when you're asking your mind to count your breaths or just be with the present moment, moment by moment, there's so many habits of wanting to think and compare and plan and problem solve and imagine and fantasize. And for the wisdom of the mind to feel those tugs and impulses to do other things and to get lost, but not to take the bait, there's, it creates a lot of heat, right? It's like that refraining from doing the predominant habits of the mind. And, and it takes a real vigilance because the impulse will sort of show itself and then, you know, it's met with wisdom. Well, you're just an impulse that feels like this. And I know how to feel you, so I don't have to act you out. I don't have to repress you. I can just feel what it feels like. And then the impulse sort of shies away. Okay, wisdom sees me. 
but it's not done because there's a lot of momentum to that impulse. So then it sneaks around this way. It comes in from above or from below, or it just finds another way to assert itself until there's no more momentum of distraction, for distraction. So, there, you know, more than anything, what our teachers remind us is that the practice takes persistence. And I mentioned it briefly in the guided sit, like uh, starting over, like in a meditation period, when we notice we've been lost in thought for five minutes, starting over isn't some aberration or mistake or problem. It's just like that's what the practice is about. Noticing we've been lost in thought, noticing the underlying, you know, whatever feeling is there because we've been lost in thought. What does it feel like now? Having been lost in thought, what's the feeling here? So energetically, you know, in that visceral sense, what's left over, having been planning, having been worrying, having been whatever. Okay, can I make peace with whatever that feeling is? Like relax with it, let it be that feeling. And then that graceful transition, oh yeah, bodies here, sittings like this, you know, just aware of what's being activated through the five sense gates, seeing, hearing, the tactile experience, probably not so much smelling and tasting, okay? Embodiments like this. And then come back to the anchor, the training anchor. Whether you're doing something more specific like we did today with counting the breath, whether you're using a mental note, you're noting what your mind is noticing, whether you're using a phrase like breathing in is like this, allowing the breath to be with the out-breath, right? There's any number of ways to use skillful thought to help connect and sustain with the present moment or to not use thought as you're learning to connect and sustain with the present moment. Sometimes having a technique that's using skillful thought is more appropriate because there's less likelihood for that habit to think to take over the mind because it's being asked to do something. You know, you're repeating something or you're naming what you're noticing. You're giving it a mental note. Oh, thinking is being known. Oh, hearing is being known. Or whatever it is. So in this um, process of building some momentum, some continuity of present moment awareness, that's a really good time to feel into this restlessness of the heart and mind. So at times, when we get enough continuity, we'll feel a more pervasive, calm, settledness of the body and the mind. But there's something in opposition to that, and it's really good to know the difference because learning how to be with restlessness is an important task. Learning how to be with doubt and restlessness, and they often go together, doubt and restlessness, right? Just that kind of buzzy, electric, unsettled feeling. 
And can awareness, wisdom and awareness, be with that electric, uneasy restlessness without being compelled to do anything, just being aware of it? That wiry feeling feels like this, like ants crawling on us, you know, or just like, get me out of here. And one of my teachers, I forget who it was, said something like, you know, in, when we're in a moment like that, let me be the first person who dies because of restlessness. I will not move. Mm-hmm. Right? So, no, we want, we don't want to make that resolve unless the, there's a pure interest to back up that resolve. Like, I'm, this is, this is curious because weirdly, it seems like the restlessness is going to actually kill me. Right? That's sort of the voice in the mind, like, if you don't bolt, if you don't leave, if you don't do something, you know, either it's going to suffocate me or I'm going to explode or, but it's really good. And all of us who've been practicing for a while have had many, many of these moments where whatever it is that's going on, it feels like life and death. But there's hopefully a quiet, voice, you know, the voice that's been around the block, the meditative block enough times to know that, yeah, it seems like it's going to kill you. It seems like you're going to explode or implode, but probably not. Probably it's just a very intense experience being felt. What happens, not forever, but in this moment, what happens if I just do my best to relax and soften. What happens in just for one moment, not for two moments, just for one moment, if I practice being interested? Like in that receptive sense, like, honey, you have permission to reveal yourself for a moment. And we always reserve the right to bolt. We're not saying we're not going to bolt or whatever. We're just doing this one moment at a time. That's how we find the safety And sometimes it may come to the point, it often does, that, okay, this is enough. I don't feel safe. It's probably safe, but I don't actually feel safe. So I'm going to turn my attention to something else. Or if it's appropriate, you know, maybe you go do some walking. Maybe you made a resolve to practice for 45 minutes, and you're just 15 minutes in. Well, maybe you do some standing meditation. Or maybe you open your eyes and just... Just be with the visual experience of seeing the room you're in instead of being with that explosive feeling of anxiety or whatever whatever that pressure, almost like a spiritual panic attack, except we're seeing the buildup in slow motion sometimes. Like, ooh, ooh, is this, is this really okay? Is this, then we know oh, it's okay to relax. But it just, and that's that sort of opening to the energy that's here, but part of the mind is entrusting the energy that's here. And that's what makes the pressure, not the energy. The energy is not a problem when there's vast, infinite space. The only problem is when we imagine there's limited space, and there's no room for that energy. Then it appears like there's a personal problem. And that wisdom, you know, that willingness to be interested and letting the, the moment reveal itself, that wisdom is vast. 
And same with love. Love has that flavor of vastness, that everything belongs, that nothing needs to be rejected, that the heart can hold it all. Whatever the heart or the mind is, it doesn't have to shrink. It doesn't have to be in control. And remember, uh, some of you have heard this because it's often repeated, but it's just so in these moments, you know, where we're renouncing becoming the doer, doing something, and we're really learning to trust, being open, being aware, and allowing, and allowing, and allowing, whether we're just with the specific anchor of our meditation practice or open more generally. But uh, Albert Einstein was once asked, well, what's the most important remaining question for the about the universe? And he said, there's always only been one question. I mean, this is just a paraphrase. I don't remember the exact words. And that question is, is the universe a safe place? And I thought that because it's, to me, a very spiritual perspective. Because when we're in that place, it's like, I'm just sitting here being aware relaxing, being aware. And if it feels like being aware in this relaxed way is going to kill me, well, I think I'm willing to take that chance. Like that the universe is this moment, right here and now, it's safe enough just to let whatever's moving move. Knowing that in the next moment I could have a different opinion. Right. So we're not... We're not making our practice ever a fixed view. I'll never move. Right? Because then we end up moving, and then we feel really like, I guess I'm just not built for this practice. We want to give up because we feel so betrayed by our resolve. So we only make resolves one moment at a time. We don't, <laughs> Ajahn Sumedho says, you don't make super, superman, superwoman, Superperson resolves, unless you're a superperson, <laughs> which we're not. We're just a human being, you know, learning about the nature of our mind and experience. Let me just read a little from Ajahn Chah. He was Ajahn Sumero's teacher. If the mind is at ease, if it's at peace, it will be naturally aware. As you keep doing it, the breath diminishes, becomes softer. The body becomes pliable. The mind becomes pliable. It's a natural process. Sitting is comfortable. You're not dull. You don't nod. You're not sleepy. The mind's natural fluency about whatever it does. The mind has a natural fluency about whatever it does. It is still. It is at peace. And then when you leave the samadhi, you're set, you say to yourself, wow, what was that? You recall the peace that you've just experienced and you never forget it. I'm just skipping around in this chapter. I've uh, included this article in the list of resources that you can see. I put it in the chat and then those of you here in the room, you can find the Google document um, on the calendar uh, event for this program, Sunday morning program. Once the mind is at peace, the, brush, the breath will d- diminish, right? Because the, 
the neat thing about the breath as an anchor, there's a lot of mirroring between the quality of the mind or heart and the quality of the body. So as the mind becomes more gathered, more subtle, then the breath becomes more refined. The breath will diminish. The body will become relaxed. The mind will become subtle. They will be in a state of balance until it will seem as if there is no breath. But nothing happens to you. When you reach this point, don't panic. Don't get up and run out because you think you've stopped breathing. It just means that your mind is at peace. You don't have anything. You don't have to do anything. Just sit there and look at whatever's present. Sometimes you may wonder, am I breathing? This is the same mistake. It is the thinking mind. Whatever happens, allow things to take their natural course. Right, so this is the opposite, right? So one is panicking or reacting to the buildup of energy, but we also weirdly react to the peace and the stillness and things getting more simple and quiet. It's like, at first it's like, oh, it's so nice. And it's like, it's a little too quiet. It's a little too still. It's almost like uh, an old fear like, I'm going to disappear. I don't want to disappear. And that, it's, that, like, that's what I meant by noticing the background restlessness, like, I really like being a neurotic doer. <laughs> you know? But you want to see that, not, a, not in an identified way, you want to see that voice, that pattern in the mind for what it is. It's just a pattern in the mind. That's all. And you want to see it. And the only time you really see it is in that process of this other half of the samadhi, the peace half, as that gets more developed, more still, more empty of doing, a doer doing, then it's going to trigger a different kind of panic. Like one panic is the pressure is building, it's too much energy, whatever that's about, or it's getting too quiet, it's too peaceful, And something will sort of, no, 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 I don't want to disappear. It's a little bit like exploring psychological death. But you're not doing anything weird. You're just sitting there, letting everything take its natural course. You're not even trying to be quiet. Things are just getting quiet. You're just aware that it's like this, and things will get quiet. Now, if quiet's going to kill us, it's, the world is already not worth living. I mean, it doesn't kill us. It just leads to very deep learning. Let me just finish this piece here before we end. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. <laughs> Do it often. And even after you're sit. And after you have your meal and air out your robe on the line, because when the nuns and monks have their meals, they have to dress with the robes in a little bit more formal way. So then after the meal, this kind of gathered time where they're with each other, then they can take their robe off, because, you know, tropics, it's hot, and hang it on the line, and get straight out to your walking practice, and you keep doing it. Now, for lay people, we don't get to alternate between walking and sitting meditation. We've got responsibilities, but the same idea... Like, even as we're doing everything we do, make present moment awareness the priority. 
Because if we don't have interest in present moment awareness during the day, then developing samadhi during our 30-minute sitting time or 45-minute sitting time or 10-minute sitting time in the morning, whatever you have, it's not going to be, we're not going to get that much momentum. We have to use the formal sitting time to build the interest for the daily lifetime, just like we use the daily life interest to support the formal sitting time. They really work together. Because every time out in our daily life that you remember that you're interested in being present, that cuts the groove so much more deeply than one time when you're sitting and your mind starts to wander and you catch it and you come back. It's much more of a deeper cut in the groove when you're really out in the seductive world in daily life and you realize there that your mind is willing to do the work to be present. Oh yeah, there's a body standing here. There's a breathing in here. Even in your middle of an argument with someone or you're you know, standing in line at the checkout counter or you're doing whatever you're doing. Because then it seems like you're a million miles away from the present moment. You're not. But that's the lie the mind will tell itself. No, no, this isn't a good time to be present. There's just too much going on. <laughs> but that's just something being known in the present moment. You're never far away. And for the mind not to be deceived by all the lies out there in daily life is really strongly reconditions the mind. So it really builds a momentum for your sitting practice when you do that periodically during the day. And when you do it a few times, then the next day you're going to do it a few more times. And eventually you start doing it every 10 or 15 minutes. You just have a time of coming back. And then it will be more and more often. That's how we change the course of our lives. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.